The truth is, you know, all organizations are human beings working with imperfect information, making decisions the best they can, you hope, sometimes imperfectly. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey folks, welcome back. Unless you've been living under a rock, you have to realize that this is a critical time for journalism in our world. Today, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with one of our country's finest and most prominent journalists, and one whose work lives regularly at the center of our political discourse. Jim Shudo is chief national security correspondent at CNN. He's reported all over the world, including extended stints in China and the Middle East. From 2011 to 2013, Jim temporarily left journalism to serve as chief of staff to U.S. Ambassador to China Gary Locke. He returned from that service to ascend to anchor of CNN Newsroom. Jim's book, The Shadow War, is a fascinating and terrifying account of the new ways China and Russia are waging war. From systematic election interference campaigns to kidnapper satellites straight out of a James Bond film. He visited the University of Montana a couple weeks back to speak at the Bacchus Center. I was fortunate to get some time with Jim. I learned a ton, and I'm excited to bring you our conversation right now. Okay, so we're here today with Jim Shudo. Jim, you just took a sip of that drum coffee. Welcome to the studio. Uh, thanks for having me. What better welcome than some local coffee? And I'm this feeling is, good. This is your first time to Montana. It is, and and it's uh, and I'm so glad I, I uh, it's a beautiful part of the country. We, we go regularly to Idaho because my wife's from out that way. Okay. So, so I've been in the neighborhood, but never to Montana itself and certainly never to Missoula. And it's, it's, you guys are lucky. You guys are lucky folks being out here. Yeah. So here to speak at the Bacchus Center this mm-hmm. evening. Um, yeah. What made you say yes to this other than just wanting to check Montana off the list? Well, I've had a relationship for a number of years with, with Senator Ambassador Bacchus. Mm-hmm. Spoke to him before he went out to China because when he went to China, I actually had, had actually served in China as chief of staff to the previous ambassador, right. Gary Locke, when I took a, a brief uh, respite from news, kind of adventure outside, um, and kept kept in touch. And I've interviewed him a number of times and I have tremendous respect for him. So, so when it came from him, I was going to say yes. Added benefit, it's Missoula. Uh, my wife wanted to come. Sure. Uh, so we had a lot of reasons to come out. Very good. Well, we're excited to have you, and I'm excited to get some some time with you. I mean, broadly speaking, I, I can't think of a, of a better person to be talking to right now. We're in the we're in the fall of this sort of lead up to who knows what you know impeachment proceedings, um, the next election, all sorts of crazy stuff swirling around. And the broad sort of area of inquiry I want to focus on is how do you separate signal from noise in an environment like this. You know, that's something I think about a lot because I think that in this environment where people are inundated with news from a dozen different sources, they've got cable news, which I work for, they got podcasts and newspapers and and social media and and some some of the stuff more useful than others, Mm -hmm. right, in in, in terms of uh, how it gets uh, gets the point across and focus on on the important stuff. So I make an effort every day in, in my job on the air as an anchor in my in my beat as a national security correspondent, but also just the kinds of stuff I'll put out on Twitter or or even writing this book to just constantly try to add value. So beyond just saying X happened, say why it's important that X happened and how it's connected to other stuff. And, and I feel like people have an appet- appetite for that because 
there's just so much stuff coming their way. And there's also a lot of misinformation frankly, right, coming right. their way, which, you know, misinformation with intent, uh, not just from foreign adversaries, but from domestic politics and politicians. And, and I consider it my duty to try to help people break through that. And, and I'm, you know, none of us are perfect as we do that. And, you know, you're all just trying to do your part to help people break through that noise. So, and, and you've been at sort of this interesting time in journalism where it's, I mean, it's, it's constantly changing field, but, you know, your previous time in journalism was sort of not pre-internet, but that kind of more standard, we report the news of the day. But now it almost seems like your job is to curate the news in real time, it mm. would seem. And fact check in real time. You know, that's another part yeah, of it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because... Not just is the news being assaulted, but but reality is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not an exaggeration. Facts are being assaulted. Where, you know, one thing I will do, you know, if we we have president goes out on the White House lawn, makes some comments, the first thing I'll say out of that, if the president has said something misleading or false, is a quick couple fact checks. There, this is not true. That's not true. Or or, or this is true. Right. I mean, you, you got to do that. But I think um, we all have to change the way. We do business to some degree because just the nature of the conversation has changed so much. When I started in news, well, I started in news in in, uh, in college working for a station in New York. Right. But like as a correspondent, I, I was overseas in Hong Kong, and um, you know it was pre-social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was even actually pre-internet. So for kids at home listening to this, like, man, how old is this guy? You know, where where the and then when I came back to the states and started working for ABC. You know, the evening news was still a primary news source for a right. big chunk of Americans. A lot of people were getting their news at 630 mm-hmm. at night and that kind of thing. Today, you know, by that hour, you, you've heard 12 different things from 12 different places. It just happens more quickly and the news cycle moves more quickly. Uh, so so that adjusts the way we we report it. I mean, the fact, listen, you report the story as best you know it sure. with, with sources that you can rely on and after proper vetting, but how quickly you do it and, and how you push back when folks attack your reporting, mm-hmm. all these things are new and they're just part of the way it's done now. You got you to gotta, you gotta fight by these new rules. Yeah, that velocity has to be really challenging. I, I think of it in the context of, you know, when these you know, unfortunate mass shootings or, mm. or, or, or large-scale disasters occur. You know, it seems to be, and, and I'm not schooled in journalism by any stretch, but you know, there's always this kind of the reporting changes over time as, as information comes out. And we seem to be operating in that type of environment on a daily basis. Yeah, it's uh, you know it's hard for people to. Yeah. I hear this from my you know I call it my unscientific uh, focus group of friends and family mm-hmm. who who are news watchers and consumers, and they will often say to me, "I just can't keep up. I need a break. It's exhausting." You know. Yeah. And and given that, I think we have to be aware of that. So you have to help people weed through it, kind of tell them, often say, tell them what what. What are the five alarm fires? And there are some. Sure. And what are the two alarm fires? You know, not everything is the end of the world. You know, right. I, I'll, right. Give it, I'll give an example. You know, the president tweets a lot of stuff. Yeah. Over the course of the day, I think that the fact is, over time, those tweets have become less, not more newsworthy. Right. In that, you know, some of it is bluster and and so on, and 
frankly, we don't have to talk about it that much. You know, you don't have to amplify it. Now, other times, you know, if, for instance, the president tweets as he has, I'm withdrawing U.S. troops from Syria, you know, that's Yeah, news, that seems like news. You know? Yeah. Uh, so I think that folks want a little guidance, uh-huh. you know. Now, at the same time, you have, because, because there's been, sadly, a something of a successful attack on the media's credibility, you, you, you do, you have to fight that too, you know, that, that folks might come into the conversation thinking, well, why should I believe you? Yeah. You know, you're part of the fake news media. Uh, you can say, I don't, I don't look like I'm a member of the fake news media. Well, no, I was going to say, you know, <laughs> I mean, we just met, but you yeah. don't really look like an enemy of the people. No, I mean, this is the thing. But that's maybe what an enemy of the people would look like. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it's just, it's debilitating it has a real effect. Yeah. Those attacks work yeah. to some degree with a portion of the population. I mean, listen, the president was transparent about why he does this in that famous interview with Leslie Stahl. Right, the transition. Right. He said, I do this because if you have critical information, I can attack it so people don't believe it. So this is, you know, this is with intent. These are attacks with intent. The sad fact is that works yeah. with, with a portion of the population. Now, there is... I get stopped every day, sometimes multiple times a day from people, in fact, and not just in the New York, Washington bubble. Mm-hmm. Uh, I landed in Missoula yesterday and someone came up to me and said, hey, thanks so much for the work you guys oh, really? are doing. We need you. And, and, I, and I will say this, and this is true, that in the last two years, I've been stopped more time than the times in the previous 20 years mm-hmm. with those kinds of comments. So I think that, that on the flip side, there are folks who are aware that what they're dis- you know issues and stories and facts that the, the, that the news has broken where other institutions have failed, you know, or, yeah. or they've beaten other institutions to that, that, that it has value. Um, but for another portion of the population, they buy. They buy the attacks. They do. They do. And, and I hear it from, again, you know, talk about my unscientific uh, focus group. Sure. I hear it from friends and family who don't hate me, but they do doubt the work we do because mm. they believe some of that misinformation too. I wonder what they believe. Do they believe it's like an editorial decision that comes around from the top, like you're part of a misinformation campaign? I do think a lot of people think that. I'll, I'll often get asked that. And even prior to the Trump era, I'd get asked, like, do, do your bosses tell you how to cover? I spent yeah. a lot of time in the Middle East, for instance, right. uh, cover, covering what were equally divisive issues, Israel, Palestine, you know, the Iraq war, et cetera. And I would often get asked by people, your, your bosses tell you how to report this story, right? They tell you how to do it. And I, and I say, no, actually, my bosses dispatch me to cover the news, and I don't get, and I've worked for ABC for a number of years, I worked mm-hmm. for CNN, and, uh, you know, I, I wasn't told, this is, this is your script for tonight's story, I want you to do this. I mean, there, there are other ways that institutions and so on have influence on the way the news is covered, but, but you know, by and large, um, you know, that's just not the way it is. But people do have that impression. They do. And particularly today, they have that impression. Yeah. So let's let's turn it back a little bit. You mentioned a little bit of some of your formative time in journalism, you know, but studied Chinese history at Yale, then did a Fulbright in mm-hmm. China. And at what point was journalism the thing you wanted mm-hmm. to do? I know your mother was a journalist, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was. And that was an influence. And I was, she always, and I got three sisters, you know, encouraged us to write and be creative in whatever way that led us, okay. you know, not, and, and I'm the only one of my Four, the four siblings that, that ended up in news, but each of us has a kind of 
you know, creative bent, I think, which, which came from that. I'm the only one who kind of took it to its full, you know, sure. resolution. I, I was, when I was in college and high school, initially I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I'd done a lot of public speaking and debate in high school. And that. And then I worked in a law firm in college mm-hmm. for a couple summers. And, and it just struck me that uh, a lot of the people I was working with were miserable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good indicator. And I made them, at the time, and listen, there are a lot of great ways you could practice law. And I know, I do know a lot of happy lawyers. Um, I also found that I was working at a firm that always seemed to be on the wrong side of the case, whatever the uh, case may be. Yeah. So you then, mean the losing side or the side you felt, slow, felt less comfortable the with? The wrong side. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, like defending the asbestos makers. Right? Okay. Right? You know, things yep. like that. The, um, so then I, I thought, and again, it was not a scientific kind of thing. It was just as I was in college thinking of exploring stuff, I said, well, how else can I um, use my skills at communication but still be focused on issues that I'm interested in and dive into them and, and, and that kind of thing. And I said, well, let's try broadcast news. And I tried it a couple summers, and then I ended up going overseas partly just to explore the world um, with the Fulbright. And, and then when I was there and I finished that, I said, well, uh, here I am in China in the early 90s um, living in Hong Kong. What better way to explore the war- world than be a reporter and kind of mm-hmm. travel around this region that I had studied? And then that, you know, as that one was enjoyable to me and satisfying, and two, I could make a living from it, I figured, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with it. So that's how, and then it then ABC hired me from there, and then 9-11 happened, and yep. that sent me on a whole new course of, you know, I'd spent so much time in East Asia, now here I was in the Middle East covering the wars and, and, and the issues there, and, and just growing my mind, I felt, and my sense of the world. And it was by virtue of these assignments that you became particularly interested in national security, defense? Yes, exactly. I think that uh, I, I, I think I had a natural kind of interest in, in, in issues of foreign affairs, um, and that often leads you in a national security path. And then with the, with the wars mm-hmm. post 9-11 here, yeah. I found myself uh, repeatedly embedded with U.S. forces, uh, covering, covering issues in Israel, Palestine, going to Saudi Arabia, going to, um, you, know, you know, a whole host of going to Iran. I've been to Iran about a dozen times mm-hmm. covering their nuclear program. The, these things, in addition to the region and the issues at hand, uh, there there was a frequent national security bent to it, and it just so when I returned to the states, um, uh, and this was after I took my my stint in government, um, CNN said, "Hey, how would you like to cover national security, the intelligence agencies, Defense Department, etc." It just seemed a natural way to capitalize on all that on the ground experience, yeah. and then go back to the places where the decisions are made and be able to, and that's helped me because. I can challenge these guys, these men and women on issues, whether we're talking about Iran or China or Russia, because I can say, listen, I've been there and I know what X looks like, which is, sure. not, which is not a frequent – it's not, a, not, a, not an automatic in Washington at least. Mm-hmm. To the, a lot of folks who make the decisions on these issues um, or cover them haven't spent as much time on the ground as I have, and, I, and, I, and that's been an advantage. Are there examples that you can think of where that advantage has really come into play? Well, I'll tell you, covering – Russia and China, you know, as central as they've they've become in the national security space, for instance, the trade war now with China, but also Russian interference in the election. As as I was covering those issues from Washington, I had the benefit of spending years, particularly in China, but also visiting and covering Russia. So I know how their governments operate. And and, um, to some degree, I've seen them, I've seen their misbehavior and their malign activities for years. So what they were up to is not 
surprising to me. I know how they operate. And that's even helped me not just with challenging U.S. officials, but China, challenging Chinese and Russian officials. I, I feel like they they can't pull a fast one on me because sure. I'll say, listen, I yeah, was you've there. Seen that move before. Yeah, I mean, I mean, China is a surveillance state, right? Yeah. It's an authoritarian state. I, I lived in China. I covered China. I worked as a government official in China. I spoke with dissidents who've been abused, imprisoned, etc. That's one reason why when the president stood on the White House lawn a couple weeks ago and called on China to investigate a political opponent, mm-hmm. I could say when I speak to Republican lawmakers and others and administration officials saying, I know as well as you that China is an authoritarian country. Explain to me how you justify a U.S. president calling on an authoritarian country with no rule of law mm-hmm. to investigate a political opponent. You know, uh, And if, if they challenge me on that, I, I could come back with you know, dozens of examples. Yeah, you said Yeah. So yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Like you mentioned, how the you know how these com- countries operate, and you talk about China as an authoritarian state, and 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 it seems like there's this popular conception that, and this was policy maybe for years and years and years that if we give the world more America, the world will want to be more like mm. America. That's not the case no. with China and Russia. No, it's a central theme to my book, The yeah. Shadow War. Yeah, is is that with both China and Russia. U.S. officials, presidents, leaders of both parties through multiple administrations uh, were guilty of, uh, this is the way Ash Carter described it in the book. And in the book, I benefited from self-critical analysis from, from senior officials who served administrations. Uh, Ash Carter said, listen, we were guilty of mirroring. In other words, we, we looked at them and thought they wanted what we wanted. Right. And that if we welcomed welcome them into in, institutions, China into the WTO, Russia into it, a cooperation agreement with NATO over time, they will see that you know, the system of alliances and global institutions that we developed are to their advantage as well. Well, fact is, that's not how China and Russia saw it. From their perspective, that system of alliances and uh, global institutions serve your interests and not ours. And mm-hmm. they, were actually, they, they were actively undermining those systems. Trying to subvert them, yeah. Exactly, through the years. Now it's pretty darn clear, but it was already clear and and the the real mistake was even as there was was contradictory evidence to this idea that they were going to kind of be welcomed into the international fold as led by the U.S. Even when there was evidence that made it very clear that's not the case, we persisted in, in these delusions and then allowed them to continue to to undermine the U.S. In, in, in a whole bunch of different ways. I mean, for instance, I tell the story. This is how I start the book that. Uh, when when the Skripal poisoning happened in the UK last year, uh, the, the attempted murder of Sergei Skripal and his daughter, mm-hmm. Julia and Salisbury, with the most powerful nerve agent ever made by man, um, that that was a real wake-up call when I spoke to European officials, U.S. defense officials, national security officials. They're like, wow, Russia assassinating someone on UK soil brazenly with a horribly dangerous advice, uh, um, substance. Wow, things have really changed. And I said, oh, really? Twelve years before that, in 2006, mm-hmm. Russia assassinated someone on British soil with polonium-210, Alexander Litvinenko. I covered that story more than a decade before. Why, why, you know, why was the Skripal signal taken as somehow this harbinger of the changing world? And in 2006... And nobody paid attention, yeah. No, and, and after 2006... Listen, Russia invaded Georgia. I mean, mm-hmm. the, they, they attacked Estonia with, with the biggest nation-on-nation cyber attack, NATO ally Estonia, in 2007. You know, all this very just, clear evidence. Yeah. Think we were just stuck in a Cold War mindset yeah. at that point? 
I think we were stuck in a post-Cold War mindset okay. to some degree, right? We yeah, thought, yeah. oh, all that stuff's done. We're in a new oh, era yeah. now. They've moved on. They're going to adopt, they're moving on they're gonna adopt the rule of law they're and democracy. Our and, yeah. and this is an example of where I could throw, if someone's going to say to me, is Russia really that much of a threat? Well, I'll remind them of Litvinenko and I'll say, by the way, I live that because covering that story, I visited a number of the locations where these assassins sure. had been before they killed him. And I visited the location where they did kill him, which was the, the Pine Bar at the Millennium Hotel in, uh, in London. Uh, because of that, there was concern that I had been contaminated with polonium-210. So really? I had to go through a long and elaborate uh, radiation test uh, weeks before my wedding. Oh, uh, gosh. It turns out I tested negative, uh, but many dozens of UK citizens tested positive because it's such a powerful substance that it was carried you know, through primary, secondary, and tertiary contaminations around, around the country. So if anybody's ever going to say to me, well, you know, you're exaggerating Russian threat, I was like, actually, no. You know, and I, yeah. you know, I have the radiation test to, <laughs> to prove mm-hmm. that. You know. China and Russia are very different places. And you mm-hmm. lay that out in the book. I mean, they're, they're approaching the shadow war with similar tactics in mm-hmm. some ways. But they want, they want very different. They're very different states and they want different things. So how did you think about like pairing them up in a book versus mm. making those comparisons and contrasts? Well, it seemed, it seemed like a, a stretch. So here you have two very different countries, different continents, languages, cultures, religions, histories, etc. But when you look at the way they behave, their tactics, their shadow war tactics are virtually identical. They, 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 they do influence ops, you mm-hmm. know, election interference. Russian interference in 2016. China, by the way, does it just in a kind of different way. Uh, I yeah, mean, they all over Australia. There's they are all over Australia. About that, yeah. you know, money, you know, don- donations, etc. But here, even here in the U.S., I mean, for instance, China stopping the purchase of soybeans in certain mm. key swing farming states. So they both do influence ops. They both have enormous cyber capabilities to attack critical infrastructure in the U.S. US. They both have deployed weapons in space. Got a whole chapter in the book mm-hmm. on that. Why do they have weapons in space? And yes, Star Wars is already here. They've got lasers in space. They've got kamikaze satellites in Kidnapping space. satellites. Kidnapper satellites. Yeah, China we'll have to talk one. all about we that. We will. We'll get to that. Um, uh, so they do it in space. And they also do old school 19th century land grabs. Mm-hmm. Russia did it in Ukraine. China did it with a twist by building its own territory in the middle of the South China Sea. So they have similar tactics. Now, their, their, their end goal is somewhat different in that Russia, in the view of the U.S. national security folks in general is, you know, Russia is a zero-sum game player. They, they, right. In any instance that they can undermine the U.S. or the West, that's a win for them. Mm-hmm. Stick a thumb in our eye, that's a win. China's, China has the broad uh, ambition to overtake the U.S. as the world's global power. So now both of them see themselves as rightfully reclaiming their position as as a global power. Sure. Russia going back to pre-fall of the Soviet Union days, China going back to like mid-19th century, pre-opium war days, mm-hmm. right? Both mm-hmm. of them seeing as regaining what is, what is their right, what was there. just on a different kind of timeline. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Kelly Webster, Chief of Stuff at the University of Montana, and you're listening to A New Angle. Yeah, with China, the, the relationship is much more intertwined economically. Mm. I mean, you look exactly. at this example, this, this story with the NBA this yeah. week. Um, things like that come up time and time again. And, you know, that, that's an interesting position for you to be in in the news is, you know, we got 
we've got government policy on the one hand, but we also got this, you know, private actors as well, what they can say and can't say and the repercussions of those different decisions. Yeah. I mean, if you think of if, if the U.S. and China is the primary superpower conflict at this time, big difference between that and, and the Cold War U.S. And, and the former Soviet Union is that the U.S. and Soviet Union had virtually no trade. China, yeah. China and the U.S. have, you know, I forget what the multiplier is, but thousands or tens of thousands more trade than we had, which which means that our that our interests are intertwined to, to a large degree. And that there's a positive side to that. Yeah, right? and absolutely. That you, have, you know, you have a shared benefit to resolving those differences. Um, so now the, the trouble is, though, will that be enough? Because there mm-hmm. are, you know, there are significant differences. And we're in the midst of a trade war that shows how difficult it is to resolve those. And, and the NBA story is just fascinating, right? To watch, you know, listen, some private... U.S. entities, imagine that, put money over values, you know. Yeah. It happens. And, and the NBA kind of in very – in 24 hours reversed that a bit and, and you know, made, yeah, you know Adam Silver making it, make it a statement, you know, that's sort of reinforcing their values. But that's certainly not a uniform – that's certainly not a uniform response from U.S. Uh, private sector. So let's talk about some of the tactics being used in the shadow war. Mm-hmm. I mean because th- this part of the – the book is fascinating. These these different things happening in space, the kamikaze satellites, the kidnapper satellites, and and we're up in space, but we're not engaged with the weapons at the same level. No, that China at, least, and at least not at this at this time. Right. So the the U.S. has weaponized space before, and I talk about this in the book. Back in the early fifties, mm-hmm. we we lit off nukes in space. Not a good idea. Right. I tell the story in there. It literally moved the Earth's ionosphere when we did that. Blew out the grid in Hawaii when they did. So we have some experience with blowing stuff up in space. Uh, and even more recently, we've shot down some satellites, did it in, in the 80s and, and again uh, a few years ago. But, but China and Russia have explicitly tested and deployed now active weapons in space. And so, so Russia has, and China too, but Russia has what, we, what Space Command calls kamikaze satellites, satellites that today they, they, they will circle critical U.S. satellites, commercial and and, and government, uh, kind of like a submarine circling a destroy, you know, a, mm-hmm. a, a, a convoy, um, with the capability of either ramming that satellite to take it out, or firing a directed energy weapon at it to 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 dazzle, you know, blind it, or even fry the electronics. China, in addition to that capability, has we reference this a kidnapper satellite that, that has a grappling arm that could pluck a satellite out of orbit. It's crazy, Moonraker it's style. Like John, yeah, J- uh, James Bond. Movie exactly. I, w- I would say that, like you know, Hollywood's like thirty years ahead of the, you know, ahead of the pretty much the technology. I mean, you will not. It, it comes up weekly that somebody says, "Why don't we have this type of screens that they had in Minority Report?" Yeah, exactly. Can't you just swipe this thing there. Sorry, that's an aside, but it'll get yeah, there. You're right. Science fiction is precursor. So why do they do this? Because the U.S. has enormous uh, technological advantage in space, mm-hmm. technology, and, and therefore a, a greater vulnerability. And China and Russia both calculate that in the event of a conflict, or even in a smaller form con- conflict, that they could take those capabilities away. And you know, for the for the U.S. military, that would be you know debilitating. You know, smart bombs aren't smart smart without mm-hmm. GPS satellites. Mm-hmm. The drones don't fly. Uh, right down to, I've been embedded with U.S. forces on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, th- they will have a laptop with them and, and take advantage of what's called a red dot system, which with a red dot identifies hostile forces within their area. Uh, so I could be with a squad commander and he opens up the 
laptop and sees that on the other side of this house, there are some bad guys. Sure. That is dependent in part on surveillance satellites and communication intercepts uh, that require that technology. So you take that away and you hamper, you know, every level of the U.S. of U.S. military capabilities. On the civilian side. Yeah, the civilian side, and t- well, too, has to be incredible. We'd all be lost without GPS, right, yeah, today. Yeah. Uh, but beyond that, I think people don't realize that um, these satellites, you know, for, for communication, for internet access, but also things like our financial markets, they depend right. on timestamps provided by GPS satellites, uh, traffic lights, uh, railroad switching systems. So if you take those away, you begin to paralyze other parts of the system and impose costs on, on the civilian population. I mean, is, in your view, is that is that the future of, of warfare, really? Is that yes. these, these types of interventions rather than ground troops and, and, and tanks? Well, both. And, well, both. Okay. And any any new war will certainly have a cyber component and likely a space component, but also, and this is the thing about the shadow wars, it extends through all all these fronts, right, from right. cyber to space, but also old school. They still, I mean, famously, I mean, I talk about this in the book. You know, in the 2012 debate, uh, you remember um, Mitt Romney identified Russia as America's greatest national security threat. Barack Obama dismissively <laughs> said, "Hey, yep. you know, the 80s are calling. They want their foreign policy back." And you know, later dismissed some of the Russian tactics as 19th century. Trouble is, they're still doing 19th century stuff w- with success. You mm-hmm. know, Russia. Is did a land grab in Europe in 2014, Crimea and eastern Ukraine, and they're still there. China built territory in the South China Sea over the course of the last several years, and they're still there. So, you know, the combination of technology with just brute force kind of stuff, it's working, and we haven't figured out a way to push back. What's your take on the the 5G Huawei story? Mm. Listen, it's a big – it gets to where we are, uh, you know, Huawei is a is an important company to China. Mm-hmm. Um, means a lot of money for them. It's actually it's an important company to the world economy. It, it yeah. supplies a lot of the backbone uh, of the internet and so on. The, the concern is that China has injected some surveillance tools in there, and, and it is true that China. I mean, China has laws on the books, as does Russia, that these companies have to cooperate with the security services. Um, and by the way, there, there's no. In the, in the in China certainly and Russia to some degree too, there is no separation between the public public and private sector. I mean, the, these companies work for the government. They have big government, you know. Uh, they're they, they may no longer be formally state-owned enterprises, but they got state control. So sure. they got to play by those rules. Can we trust them, knowing how China operates? So it's a legitimate national security concern. Um, and you know, the Trump administration is interesting. They they I just saw that. Uh, Trump has allowed U.S. companies to sell stuff to right, Huawei right. again as kind of a concession in the midst of the trade talks because uh, Huawei depends on U.S. Mm-hmm. chip makers, et cetera. So wait, is it a national security concern or is it not? Yeah, it's something is the it? president hasn't you know, been clear about. I mean, do you think it's reasonable? I'm thinking of this in terms of what this means for the average citizen. Like, We're all walking around with these listening devices and GPSs in our pockets. Yeah. Is it a concern that they're all made in China? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you, you remember that, that uh, beyond the iPhones, a lot of us have, you know, th- there's, a, there's a Chinese handset maker, Xiaomi. Mm-hmm. I think, and, and U.S. national security officials were asked about this in, a, in, a, in Senate testimony last year. Would you have? And they're like, there's no way I would have that in my pocket. Now, can you make the same argument? Because, I don't know, Apple makes its stuff over there. Um, it's not the same. I mean, the truth is, 
now the technology is such you 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 wouldn't have to inject it in there at manufacture. You could pop. I mean, anytime you or I logs onto a Wi-Fi network, yeah. someone could dump something on your phone. I always worry about that. I lived in China. Now this is a new. Uh, you know, my iPhone is new. I've had. I don't know, bought like 47 since the, since I was in China, or however many, you know, buy not, not really, but you know what I'm saying. Um, but, you know, my profile is the same. And yeah. I always wonder what's floating around in my profile. Yeah. You know, that uh, malware. I, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. And you could take, you, you could scrub it today, and then the next time you do something that you, you know, you didn't realize you did, did you get, did you get uh, compromised again? I mean, it's a, you know, it's interesting. I'll tell you, like I talked to, in, in the in the book on uh, Russian interference in the election, I talked to the former deputy director of the NSA, Rick Leggett, and I, and we talked about he talked about like the danger of the Internet of Things today in terms of surveillance, yeah. and, he, and he said, for instance, no way I'm going to have like, an Echo or one of these things in my home because he's like that's a listening device. He's not the only one who thinks that, but you've heard that from mm-hmm. others. Um, you know, we, you know, there are a lot of vulnerabilities there, and China and Russia are are very good at at uh, exploiting those vulnerabilities. Yeah, not only China, Russia, but the Amazon, Google, Facebook, like all these exactly. other I know. data aggregators. I know. It makes me think about, you know, the, the book focuses on the activities of China and Russia, but mm-hmm. you've been on both sides of the security clearance game. Like, what's, what are we doing? Yeah. Like, what, what are we, we've got to be up to some of these same tricks, I would imagine. Well, here's the thing. I mean, that, it's a question, and you've heard the president himself say this, right? Well, we yeah. do a lot of bad things, right. too. Right, he, he uses said to Bill that as justification yeah. often. Now, the U.S., and you'll hear that equivalence on election interference, right? So right. we do it. I think it's a false equivalence. Okay. We, we don't do the same things they do. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't steal the emails of political candidates there. First of all, China and Russia, let's be frank, don't have actual democracies by any means. You know, they, uh, so it is, it's, it's apples and oranges there. But no, we don't go into countries and you know, steal the emails of candidates and then release them strategically uh, over the course of time to influence the outcome of that election, which is exactly what Russia did, both the DNC emails and the, and the Michael, uh, the John Podesta e- emails. I'm going to tell the story in the book. I mean, just some of the specifics make it so clear as to what Russia intended. You know, I always ask people, how long after the release of the Access Hollywood tape did WikiLeaks begin releasing the stolen John Podesta emails? What's your guess? I mean, it was probably within minutes. Yeah, it was 22 minutes. You know, yeah, that that's no accident, right? You know, that was the, was the weaponization of information. So they do stuff we don't do. And by the way, beyond the influence ops, I mean, for instance, you'll hear this from you'll hear this from Republicans, um, you'll hear this from Trump supporters and even Trump officials about Ukraine to say, well, we intervened in the Ukraine political protests. You know, this was a CIA operation, which is a Russian talking point. I, I spent time there in the midst of those protests. Uh-huh. These were Ukrainians who didn't like the pro-Russian government because they were corrupt. And by the way, Russian and Ukrainian snipers during those protests in the Maidan, um, you know, in, in 2013 and 2014, they, they up and assassinated dozens of people from the rooftops. They shot them in the head, you mm-hmm. know. So... You could say to me that we, we all have our bad actions, but the U, U.S. does not does not do what Russia does in that in that context. Okay. Yeah. And so, back back to kind of the news. Something you said there: the weaponization of information. You know, when you're in that, you know, either either before you go on the air or while you're on the air, and information is coming to you in real time. How are you making decisions about how to cover 
information that's coming across the deck that could be that could be militarized or be, being deployed to you for purpose, if that mm. makes sense. By who? By who? Well, whatever the source, like something coming from WikiLeaks. How do you know? Oh, I see. Okay, are these John Podesta emails newsworthy? Well, well they certainly are newsworthy in I a way, you. but the source is, you know, no, of, of questionable ethic. How do you view those I agree. decisions? I think there has to be and has not yet been a reckoning on how the media handled the WikiLeaks releases during the 2016 campaign, mm-hmm. because that was that was an influence operation by Russia, and. And the media broadly reported the stuff as it was coming out. Um, now, it's going to happen again at some point. It might happen in the coming months as we get into 2020. And you can argue to some degree you're seeing little ripples of that already. Okay. We ought to do a better job because otherwise you are amplifying what is an influence operation. Yeah, it just seems that it's – it's hard to know what to cover as a story, like what constitutes a news story. Mm-hmm. You could say that about President Trump's tweets. You've mentioned that before. Yeah. Like what makes – and it's interesting too. I think Twitter struggles with this as a company. Yeah. Uh, you know, and they're, they're, in a, they're in a tough spot. But the president would violate so many of their terms of use ag- agreements yeah. and be kicked off the platform if he were anybody he but the, the president. He right? lies all the time. But since he's the president, it's newsworthy, yeah. potentially. Yeah. yeah, it's a tough call for them. It's a tough call for us. I, I, you know, we're making editorial judgments all the time right. about what's newsworthy. You know, if he makes a false accusation against someone and you just put it out there, are you amplifying that false accusation? Yeah. So we try, you know, in our show every day from 9 to 11, when you get that stuff, it's, you know, my co-anchor, Poppy Harlow, and I, if we see someone like, well, that's false, I'm not going to repeat that on the air. Mm-hmm. No need, there's no reason to. Um, and in fact, there's a lot of reason not to. Uh, so you gotta, you got to do that. It's, it's hard to. It's hard to do that. But I think that um, you can make calls like that that make a difference. Um, and then you just have to do your job uh, of vetting the stuff as best you can. You know, if someone makes a fault, you know, explore it. You know, listen, in the Biden allegations right, right. out there, um, you know, we fact check that regularly too. You know, the, 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 beyond saying these are unfounded, you know, which is the shorthand for it, say, okay, well, here's what happened, and there is no evidence of this, you know, that kind of thing, and that that, you know, that's is adding value. That's what we're asked to do, and you, you gotta, um, you gotta, you gotta do that as best you can. So you mentioned there has not been a reckoning about how the news media handled the WikiLeaks story I don't think so. in particular. I mean, what do you see as the future of your field? Like, where five years from now, what is what does it look like? Well, I think that you know, for all the crises and the attacks, um, and listen, the, the the erosion of belief in the media in some quarters, yeah, um, and that that stuff's all real. In many ways, I think the last few years have seen some of the best moments of the media, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff we know about this president or other, or other uh, and not just this president, but British and sorry, Chinese and Russian malign activities, et cetera, were the result of good reporting. Yeah. It has been confirmed by public documents. I mean, look at the whistleblower thing, you know, the early reporting about what went on in that phone call. Mm-hmm. It's been confirmed by the transcript and so on. You know, for all the president's attacks, the fact is that 
Heck, in that case, even stuff that he released himself confirmed what right, the early right. reporting was. So, you know, it's because of media reporting that you found out first about the Trump Tower meeting, mm-hmm. right, in 2016, mm-hmm. and that you found out that the White House released a misleading, deliberately misleading statement about it. You know, reporting helped reveal the payments to Stormy Daniels that the president lied about. So, you, you know, good reporting has exposed this stuff, and, and we've been proven right. We, the media, we're large, has been proven right. Now, have there been mistakes made in there? Absolutely. That's always been the case. I think you just, when, when mistakes, when you make mistakes, you just got to own up to them. Sure. Um, but I will say this, and I tell people this all the time, that I've never worked in an environment where our vetting is more rigorous than it is today. It has to be. Yeah. Because you know that even small mistakes will be amplified. And, you know, as I always say to people, you know, the only thing, the most important thing I have in my career is my reputation. And, you know, I have zero incentive to undermine that. Mm-hmm. So let's, um, in our last time together here, talk about kind of the, you know, in the last chapter of The Shadow War, you lay out some of your recommendations mm. for how to move forward. Can you walk us through some of those? Sure. So one, know the enemy. Okay. You know, we talked about mirroring before that, mm-hmm. that we as a country, our leaders have been guilty of not knowing what our adversaries really wanted. And, and that's part. That's happening now across the national security infrastructure. The change. The change. Okay. Folks recognize it. Hasn't happened with our commander in chief. Yeah, he yeah. still doesn't buy it, mm-hmm. and that's a problem. And you need, you know, you need what they what they'll call a whole of government response, right? You you need to have the most powerful officials on board just to get the attention and the resources. Yeah. I mean, we know, you know, President Trump has had one cabinet le- level meeting on election security. He doesn't want to talk about it. His chief of staff told his former Homeland Security secretary not to bring it up Don't with bring him. It up. Can you protect an election if the president won't do that? It's hard, to, trying, it's hard to imagine how. They're trying, but, you know, it's, it's, it, you can't have as credible a defense as you need. That's one thing. You know, the importance of alliances, that you need your friends more, not less. Again, okay. this is a president who does the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. You know, you need NATO more to stand up to Russia. Um, you know, in a, you can make a good argument that even if you're conducting a trade war with China, because China is a genuinely bad actor in trade, that you'd be stronger if you, had your, if you weren't at the same time attacking your allies in a right, similar way. Right. So alliances matter. Um, there's also uh, a lot in there about shared responsibility. That um, I, I talk a lot about the Estonians because the Estonians, NATO partner, just this remarkable country, you know, a million people sitting right on Russia's border, but they stand up to Russia. Yeah, they fought back. They're messing with them all the time. Um, And I spoke to the president of Estonia and other officials, and and they talk a lot about cyber hygiene, that individuals, we all have a responsibility uh, to to just get smarter about this stuff because you're only as strong as your weakest link. Right. The Podesta emails, they were, you know, a phishing scam, Exactly. Podesta, and I tell the story in this, like like a tragic one. He gets a, a fake Google email uh, password reset. We've mm-hmm. all gotten them. And they did the right thing. His assistant emailed their IT person and said, is this legitimate? By Podesta's story, the IT person meant to, emailed back with the intention of saying it's illegitimate, autocorrected to legitimate. We've all yeah. had that happen. Yeah, you well, know? we certainly had autocorrects. I yeah. don't know if I had that particular that one. That one, you know, something along those lines. They click on the link and, you know, the rest is history. The, the yeah. Russians are in the email. So all of us have to be smarter because whether it's a private organization or a government organization, 
you know, folks can find their way in if, if we're not smart. Sure. That's important. But leadership, you know, I, I spoke to so many officials for this. It just comes back to leadership and a clear expression of our values and our priorities. Um, you know, you have to defend and, and get better defenses both individually and to our institutions and organizations to these kinds of attacks. Uh, but you also have to have leadership and you, you have to, you know, because our, our internal divisions over these things provide an enormous opportunity for Russia and China to dive into those divisions. As, as they watch us shoot at each other yeah. over, over whether interference even happened, you know Putin is cheering. Yeah, spiking the football. Him. He's yeah. laughing. He's Absolutely. laughing, literally, yeah. on camera. It's, it's remarkable. I guess it makes me think about, so you spent this time working for Ambassador Locke and you know, security clearance. You're on the other side for a bit. You know, when we look at what's happening with policy, what's happening with the way the government's operating or whatever organization, really, like, I think we try to imbue some sense of strategy. Like, I might not understand everything that's going on, but it can't be as crazy as it looks. Mm -hmm. Is it as crazy as it looks? Well, one thing I found working on the other side, as it were, is that I think, I think some of us have an impression that, you know, with all the tools of government, intelligence and institutions and so on, that they really know what's going on. They got to know. Yeah. Um, but the truth, they know where yeah, they know what happened. They know where the bodies are buried. Yeah. Exactly. Um, the truth is, you know, all organizations are human beings working with imperfect information, making decisions the best they can. You hope sometimes imperfectly. Mm -hmm. You know, and that that's an I think an important lesson. Um, I also, th th you know, think that you know, folks. Most folks are trying to do their best with what they have. Sure. You know, our politics have gotten poisonous. Some of it is truly detrimental. Um, but that when, when you're inside these institutions, you, you, know, you, you see that most folks are trying to do the best they have, but that there, there is no magic bullet. Um, there, is, you know, there is no perfect information. They often make mistakes with mm -hmm. that information. Um, and uh, I think that's an important lesson for all of us. Yeah, and that seems like a great way to kind of bring the conversation mm. to a close. Jim, I'm so excited I got some time with you. I'm so thankful for the work you're doing every day, but also this book as well. I mean, we didn't even ask you that. How the heck did you write this book in the midst of the news environment we're in now? So, well, I like, didn't- Being an anchor is not an easy job. I didn't take any time off, and I, and I look, so what I did is I, I just divvied it up. It was, you know, about, it's about a 300-word book. That's about 80,000 yep. words. I had about, based on our, the timeline with the publisher, I had about eight months to write it. Wow. So I said, okay, 10,000 words a month, 2,500 words a week, and keep to that schedule. I wrote a lot on planes and trains. I wrote a lot in coffee shops down the street from our house and just try to keep to that schedule and then revise later. Because I always feel like it's easier to get the words down and then go from there. Yeah, hey, get something created. Yeah. 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 Well, the, the book is important. I encourage everybody to read it. Thanks for coming here, sharing your story with the University of Montana and... Yeah, keep on being the enemy of the people because we, we need you out there. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. It's a, really enjoyed the conversation. All right. Hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. Check out Jim's reporting on CNN weekdays from 9 to 11 a.m. And read The Shadow War. It's a great book. Okay, coming up next week, we have sustainability expert Lara Burks. Lara is amazing, and I think you'll enjoy our conversation next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. 
These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum and interns Aspen Runkel and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word. Be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.